Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Tothy, we're talking to our mutual friend, Jennifer O'Brien, about a difficult topic today. A difficult but really important topic, and that's end of life and palliative care. You and I have known and worked with Jennifer over the years during her healthcare management career. Today, I'm speaking to her about a more recent and unexpected twist in her career trajectory. Yes. Jen's husband practiced palliative medicine until a terminal illness converted him from physician to patient. And Jen documents her journey with him at the end of his life. Her background and artistic abilities make her book, The Hospice Doctor's Widow, an insightful and really useful read. What a great title, Tothi. Yeah. Look, our audience is going to be impressed by Jennifer's story, her book, and critique of healthcare handling of end-of-life treatments. Well, typically, Mike, we would do word of the show at this point, but for this episode, we are going to go directly to your interview with Jen. Right. Um, Word of the show just didn't feel uh, right for this episode of of Sound Practice. So thanks, Tothi. Sure. So here we go. Here's your interview with Jennifer O'Brien. My guest today is Jennifer O'Brien has a long history in healthcare, has more than 45 uh, publications, and more specifically for today's interview, she is the author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. And I am very pleased to welcome Jennifer to the podcast. Welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, my, my pleasure. So for those unfamiliar, can you Describe the background and overview of your book, The Hospice Doctor's Widow, for us. Absolutely. Um, So I'm a self-taught collage and assemblage artist. And um, at some point in that history of, uh, of of arting, I started to teach myself digital collage. And um, as any artist will tell you, they work through a lot of uh, stuff, you know, feelings and thoughts and so forth in their art. And, um, and so when my beloved late husband, Bob Lemberg, was diagnosed with um, a stage four metastatic um, cancer, I, of course, turned to collaging and my art for a form of sort of self-care and outlet. And um, I kept a journal. Um, a it, it it was an art journal, and uh, and I did it um, in digital collage using Adobe Photoshop uh, in a way that a lot of people don't use Adobe Photoshop. Um, but it's similar to traditional collage. You you cut stuff out and you layer it on. And I and I love collaging digital or or the real thing um, for art journaling because it's got texture and it's got a lot of layers and it's got um, symbolism and so forth. And so, um, so yeah, I, I kind of dove into that right away. Um, just, just trying to have a place to, to express everything yet keep it to myself. 
Um, and I, I kept it up as he got, he lived for 22 months after the diagnosis. And um, after, as he got sicker and closer to death, of course, I didn't have a lot of time to stand in front of the computer and create these, these digital collages, but I did, of course, keep a handwritten journal throughout that. And um, again, for the same basic reason. And then, um, and then after he died, um, I had more time on my hands. And so I, I really developed it and um, finished all of the stuff that, that had le been left unfinished and filled in some stuff and continued it, you know, in the probably about year, year and a half after his death. Um, and so um, when I guess Bob had died, been dead for about a year and a half, the so-called book was not a book. It was a stack of papers that I probably, my, my little home printer probably had its, it was probably on hospice after the printing of this stack of pages. And a very dear friend of mine who's also, who was also in um, healthcare administration, if anybody's worked for Tenet, they knew him probably, Macon Moore, um, was diagnosed with uh, a very aggressive bladder cancer. And when he called me and told me, I mean, you know, I, he, he lived in New Orleans and I got a ticket to go down there. And as I was packing, I threw this stack of, pages from my printer into my suitcase. And I went down and, and spent a couple days with he and his wife. I handed this thing to him and I'm like, you know, I kept this thing while Bob was sick and after he died and you might want to take a look at it. And he took it and the next morning he brought it back to me and said, this is really helpful and you need to give this to my wife. She needs, she needs to see this. Um, so that she has an idea of what she's in for. Uh, and I did, I gave it to his wife and she had a very similar reaction of that it was helpful. And she took a bunch of pictures of pages with her phone and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know that until later, but anyway, so, um, so it was wonderful to, to have had that and been a part of, of helping them. Um, he died six months after his diagnosis. And interestingly, about that same time, I was working, I had been an interim CEO position at a very large um, multi-specialty practice here in Little Rock. And a, uh, a neurologist that I was working with um, was lamenting one day because he was in the process of diagnosing three of his patients with ALS and having to give them the news. And um, by this time I had taken the stack of pages and used one of those vacation book um, programs mm -hmm. to create an actual physical book. Um, just, I just wanted to feel it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when, when Dr. Silzer told me about this, this, you know, he just was beside himself as, as anybody would be having to share this news with three couples. Um, I said, you know, you, you might want to take a look at this thing I did when Bob was sick. And, um, and he took it home and he came back and said, Jen, you're not getting that book back. 
He said, I'm just, I'm just going to loan it to these patients and their spouses and, um, you know, and uh, be, and he said, and you need to figure out how to make this book available because um, it is really helpful. And, um, and so that, that was that. And, 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 you know, that's pretty powerful to, um, to have something like that, um, come about and to know, I know, I knew at that point that the book had helped what eight, at least eight people. Right. Um, and so, and so I, I, uh, I sought out a publisher and, um, she took a look at it and she agreed and, um, and we published it and it was, uh, I can't say that was easy. Um, it is, uh, publishing a book is a really hard thing. And then when it's your very personal journal about the saddest time in your life, um, it can, it can, I think it's that much harder. Maybe, I don't know, cause it's the only one I've ever done and probably ever will. Um, but anyway, uh, um, so it came out on February 25th of this year, of course, three weeks before the, the whole lockdown yeah, thing occurred. Sure. And interestingly enough, um, in a lot of ways, the, lo the lockdown has um, helped uh, get the word out. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are struggling with caregiving, family caregiving and end of life and that sort of thing. So. Um, it's gotten some traction that I'm not entirely sure it would have gotten um, otherwise. I don't know, of course, but so that's kind well, of the story about, about how the book came to me. <laughs> well, in some ways it had to have been informed by your experience in, in healthcare and you've exactly. north, of north of 30 years in healthcare. Can, can you describe for our audience some of your background? Yes, yes, absolutely. So I, I have been I have been on the business or leadership side of healthcare for 33 years. I'd like to say I started when I was 12, um, and uh, I um, mostly going from consulting to into into um, various administrative roles, leadership roles, back into consulting. I am a change agent, so on the, the times that I have gone to work for, I worked at Northwestern University Medical Center, I, I worked um, at, down at LSU Med Center, I worked for Rush in Chicago, and then most recently a couple of very large practices down here in Arkansas. I'm, I'm a change agent, I do a lot of this interim leadership, let's turn the battleship Let's get some things fixed, and then I hire my replacement and get out. Um, and really, what that that helps um, that sort of perspective helps me make some tough changes. You know, when I when everybody knows I'm not going to be around forever, so it's easier <laughs> it's easier to get angry with me. Um, I don't <laughs> I don't worry about getting fired because that that was kind of always in the plan anyway. Usually, you know, not necessarily getting fired, but you know of the whole thing coming to an end. So, um, so yeah, I've, I, I would say that was certainly a big part of it. Although, um, interestingly enough, in the times that I worked in med centers, I always loved that being that close to the patients. I'm not a clinical person, like 
so not a clinical person. Um, I, I don't even have pets, I, you know, um, <laughs> I don't deal in bodily fluids. Um, but anyway, um, but, but being, being close to it, being close to the patients, being close to the medicine and facilitating, helping the physicians and the nurses and um, the medical assistants, you know, provide a, a better care and 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 feeling like I was a part of it that way was was always um, a big deal for me but I will tell you the 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 interim position I've done since Bob's death which was this large um, multi-specialty medical practice um, you know that there was now a new dimension there was the fact that when I walked through when I say this place was huge it was it was larger than some a lot of community hospitals. I walked through different waiting rooms, um, seeing people with their loved one and remembering being with Bob because I was with Bob for pretty much every treatment and every diagnostic image he had, um, and and knowing that's that's just a big part of it. And then of course, um, you know, having lost him, so. I, I feel like a, a whole new layer. Being his wife was a was a new layer to to my professional perspective. I really, um, Bob and I got married in two thousand and twelve, and so um, I've I've always been a physician advocate, but I I really started to understand what kind of commitment physicians and their families make. Um, and live uh, on a regular basis. And so, and then of course, losing him, you know. And the other thing that's included in the book that's an important part of this um, is, um, is, is Bob's, uh, a lot of what Bob would tell patients and their families, a lot of what he imparted on the team that he worked with you know, is in the book because we were basically, he was a really good palliative care and hospice doctor. And, and there were a lot of reasons for that. But now when he got diagnosed, we were faced with sort of, you know, putting that all back on ourselves. And, um, and that's a, that's a big element of the book. He like the concept that's in the beginning of the book of what he would tell patients was precious time. You're, he would tell patients you're into precious time this and their families. This is, you know, this is when you say what you need to say and you don't say what you'll later regret. And, and I think families really appreciated that he was a physician willing to say um, that that's where you are now. And then and then I had to say, okay, now how am I going to handle our precious time? And how am I, you know, going to be able to live with how I um, handled that after he dies? And so, yeah, it was, it was uh, extraordinary. In preparing for our, our talk today, I looked up the book and, and, and read a number of uh, folks' reviews uh, uh -huh. of it, and, and they're all they're all tremendous, um, without without fail. Um, and many people claim to have read and reread uh, the book. What do you think it is about the hospice doctor's widow that connects with so many readers? Well, for one thing, it's a short book, and there's a lot of pictures, so it's easy to read it more than once. <laughs> Um, and I don't say that lightly. It, it's about 85 pages. It is eight by 10. And it is, there's a lot of good information in it, 
but there's also a lot of art in it. And you can look at a page um, and take in the message and then put it down and come back to it, come back to the book later or read it straight through in a sitting because like I said, it's 85 pages. I mean, um, and then come back to it later. Um, I think the reason that that's effective for people who, um, who are in the caregiving situation or even the recent loss um, is because you're overwhelmed at that point. You cannot, when someone gets a diagnosis, you cannot, and this is why I think Dr. Silzer wanted it for his patients and why um, I just got a, a clinical professor of medicine at Stanford just wrote to me and said, this book is remarkable and should be required reading for everyone facing the mortality of a loved one. Nice. And that is because you can't deal with a chapter book when, when it's you're- It's not the time for Herman Melville, is it? No, it's not. It's not. And so, so this book, um, you know, it has pictures and it has short- um, messages and it has way of ways of positioning really fairly large difficult concepts in in quick easy um not necessarily easy to you know to to live but easy to process ways and easy to understand and so and it's and it's and it's got a lot of pretty raw honesty because when you are taking care of someone you love it 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 they don't feel good and sometimes they're not nice to you. And, um, and you know, it wouldn't have been my personal journal if I hadn't put a little of that in there. Um, sure. So, sure. so uh, that's, yeah. Uh, that, that, that's honest and I'm, I'm sure also a reason that it connects with, with, with readers. Um, we've been talking about uh, your book and, and as you know, our audience is made up of physician leaders and healthcare executives. On balance, how well does our healthcare system do with palliative care? I think we have a lot of opportunity <laughs> for improvement <laughs> in the area of palliative care. Um, I, I think that uh, I think that first off, a lot of physicians, a lot of healthcare leaders, don't understand that palliative care is not hospice. Um, they think the two are synonymous, and they are absolutely not. Um, and uh, and so, because a lot of times they're using those two words interchangeably, um, you know, the world is not the world is taking the term palliative care as you know some sort of death sentence. Um, palliative care is so when you when you're someone in your family or in your close circle is diagnosed with a serious um, condition. Uh, there's a lot that goes with that. Uh, there's a lot of social issues. There are spiritual issues. There are a lot of um, symptoms and side effects that um, that sometimes the primary specialist um, certainly understands, but maybe doesn't always have um, the complete perspective on how that works together. Um, so palliative care as a specialty is an interdisciplinary team that includes a subset specialty trained physician, an advanced practice um, 
nurse or PA in palliative care, a social worker trained in palliative care, and a chaplain trained in palliative care. So, so we're dealing with these big issues that impact the life of not only the person that's ill, but the people close to them. And palliative care takes all of that into account. And I think, I think there are ways, you know, I guess looking at palliative care as, um, you know, if you're not ready to commit to, to a um, fellowship in your institution or you don't have the funds or whatever, I think, I, think, I think probably one of the biggest things we can do as healthcare leaders is recognize family caregivers. Um, May uh, this year, of this year, the AARP does a five-year survey on family caregiving and their report for 2020 came out in May and there are now 54 million family caregivers in the United, in the United States, 54 wow. million. That is up from uh, 45 million, it's up 9 million from five years ago, all pre-COVID. There are only 209 million adults in the US. So when a healthcare leader looks at his or her team, just your own employees, one in four of your employees is taking care of someone in their family, and we use that term loosely, it could be, you know, mm -hmm. um, immediate or, or otherwise. And if they live with that person, they're spending 37.4 hours a week taking care of them. So that's another full-time job. And if they don't live with that person, they're spending almost 15 hours a week taking care of them. So that's almost not quite a part-time job. And that's all pre-COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So that's all, that, those numbers are gonna grow as exponentially after this crisis is over uh, because there's gonna be, right, so much more going on. So, so the fact that we don't, we don't look at that, we don't recognize that even in our own institutions and then now take that and say how that impacts just our world and our patients and you know that sort of thing and uh and the average time that that somebody spends family caregiving is 4.5 years so and at the end of the 4.5 years you know most often the person dies i mean this includes people who are taking care of someone who's had a surgery and recovers fully so but but that's a lot shorter time, right? So the average amount of time, the duration of that family caregiving is 4.5 years. At the end of, I mean, this is the, the other sort of, there are, there are three truths that I think in healthcare, in, the, in this country, we fail to recognize, perhaps in other countries, that at the end of life comes death, that there are no do-overs in end of life, and that changed forever, survivors remain. And the fact that we, you know, and so that's typically where caregiving, family caregiving heads, right? You touched on this, but, but it seems to me that in all areas of, of medicine, there's a certain degree of, of art of practicing medicine and maybe some 
specialties or subspecialties have a little bit less of that. And um, for whatever reason, I'm thinking of, of, of pathology or, or, or radiology, a little less patient interaction. But certainly palliative care seems to me to be weighed, weighted very heavily on the art portion of the practice of medicine. Do, do you think I'm correct? I think um, I think you are correct in that the art of medicine is about the story and the patient, right? There is a there's a growing field of narrative medicine going on right now. There's a growing field of what's called slow medicine that deals with um, with the story, with the person, with the people. And so, to the degree that yes, palliative care by its nature recognizes that there's a story and there's a, and there's a family or a family type unit um, that there are other people affected by the illness. But I would say that it's not limited to palliative care. I've, I've been inspired by surgeons who took, made a point to say at the beginning of, an op, of a surgery, you know, this is who this person is. This is what we're doing for them. This is, you know, and I've known pathologists and some and the radiologists who have taken just 15 seconds to familiarize themselves with who this person is that they're that they're about to look at cells or images and and what their story is. So I, I think story is the art of medicine and the degree to which we we fold that in. Um, I mean, what we're dealing in is just the most, it's just the most precious thing, right? It's, it's the birth to death. It's the whole deal. A absolutely. Well, look, it, it's hard for me to get through any interview nowadays without talking a little bit about COVID-19. So certainly as we speak, we're in the midst of a, a pandemic, as everyone knows. And we've all heard sad stories of loved ones being separated from their, their dying relatives. Uh, how do you believe that COVID-19 has impacted caregivers of terminally ill patients? So caregivers specifically, I think, um, are having the absolute hardest time. They, you know, what was, I've done a lot of really difficult things. I, you know, took a $75 million a year practice and did a acquisition in 84 days with a hospital system, did the due diligence and everything and nothing. I, I have dealt, I have dealt with surgeons who threw things at me and nothing was as hard as taking care of my husband and making sure that he had, you know, the end of life and he felt loved and comforted through the whole thing. So there is, there is no harder job, I am convinced, on this planet than family caregiving. Um, so now that's just a thousand times worse because your fear is that your loved one will get COVID-19 um, and, and all of, and to some degree, even if they don't, you're not able to be with them through some of their treatments for whatever their their main diagnosis is. Um, so yeah, this this has taken um, an incredibly challenging thing of family caregiving and just added a layer of fear that is unimaginable to me. I I would I would agree. As I was preparing for this, I I, I thought of a book that. I'd read some years ago, The Republic of Suffering by Drew Gilpin Faust. 
It shows how an event can alter or transform society's attitudes towards uh, death and, and dying. Specifically, her book was about the Civil War. Um, do you believe that COVID-19 will have long-term impact uh, upon caregivers of terminally ill uh, patients' view of, of death and dying? I hope that, yeah, I hope that COVID-19 changes a lot about our view on death and dying. I mean, you know, like I said, at the end of life is death, no do-overs and, and being left behind and knowing that I did everything, knowing that, I mean, and this is in the book, you know, Bob wrote letters to people he loved. Bob asked, you know, we went, he had certain things he wanted me to give to people after he died. Um, and knowing that I did exactly everything and, and, and that, and we did, and there's a, a couple things in the book about, you know, very practical stuff that we did to prepare for his death. Um, and, uh, and so it allowed me to then, you know, focus on, grieving and loving him and, and missing him and, you know, getting to the matter of grief rather than just being bewildered by, by, it's always sort of fascinating to me when people are bewildered by a death um, of someone who is close to or older than life expectancy. Like, you know, well, what did you think was going to happen at the end? I mean, you know, where's the mystery? Right. Yeah. Nobody gets out alive. I mean, so, so, it, so, and, and it's just such a gift and, and it's such a, such a intimate thing when to, to have these discussions with someone you love and, and to know what they really want and be able to, to carry it through. So I, I, I think, you know, there's all these headlines about, teachers are are preparing their wills. Well, that's good. As far as I'm concerned, that's good news, right? This is this is all good discussion. This is this is healthy. We need to talk about end of life. Um, a lot more. We we need I have on my website this thing I call the croak folder, which is a list of, you know, what you need to have put aside um, so that people who love you if if you die suddenly or, you know, and, and believe me, having done all of this and, and, and been the wife of a palliative care and hospice doctor, I can tell you it's a lot easier to talk about stuff when everybody's well. Um, could, for the sake of our audience, could you give your website address? Sure. It's hospicedoctorswidow.com. So and you can Excellent. spell out doctors or you can, no apostrophe, or you can just use the DRS. Very, very nice. Now, been involved in in healthcare, and, and certainly it seems as medicine improves over over the years and, and treatments become more effective, that some terminal illnesses can become elongated. Yes, this must have an impact upon caregivers as well as terminally ill patients. What, what do you think about that? I have a lot. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that, and and most because we experienced this with Bob. Um, there is a new chemotherapy coming out almost every month, right? And so, and there is, especially in oncology, um, there is just this kind of drive, this default to try the next one. Well, let's try the next one. And I, and there is a page in the book about 
in laypersons, in my terms, um, you know, kind of how Bob would go about deciding whether he wanted to try something, um, another chemotherapy that I think is important because because it's not as simple as just trying the next one be, be, because you could face side effects or complications that could make for a much more difficult um, end of life um, or rest of life than, than you might've had. And especially this is true you know, during this time of COVID-19 because if you get a complication and you have to be admitted, you, you mm. cannot, have the, the same level of visitor and companionship and so forth inpatient as you can otherwise. So, um, so yeah, I, and I, and I think we also in our, in our healthcare system have run into this problem where there's such a space uh, between say a specialty like oncology, hematology and palliative care, and then ultimately hospice that 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 there's this like sort of there's this this gap and and so when in in oncology and hematology it's palliative care is either misunderstood as to what it is and or seen as some sort of giving up and i remember um when bob was there was a it was a real struggle You've been with this doctor, he or she has helped you through some very difficult times. And now I think this is the biggest issue. And, and now when it's time to say, I, I don't want to try any more chemotherapies, this, you know, this is, I, I'm, I want to just, I want to be comfortable. I want to live the rest of my life. There's this heart wrenching goodbye that has to happen between this oncologist who has taken you through really difficult stuff, right? And, and some oncologists are part of the process, but most kind of have this whole, well, once you say you don't want any more treatment, you can't see me anymore. Mm. And it, it's, yeah. it's heart-wrenching because you have developed a real relationship with your primary specialist and it, it's, you know, it's a me or them kind of thing. And, and so it makes what's already painful because you're dying and you're losing, you know, as a caregiver, you're losing your loved one. And now you're having to have this like breakup, you know? Uh, that's very, that's very interesting. And we're, we're approaching the end of, of our time, um, in this this interview, but I think you're you're hitting at something, and I really want to to give you an opportunity to make recommendations to to the sound practice audience of healthcare executives and physician leaders on how to improve palliative care and uh, the process for caregivers. And I think you were you were getting there, and I'd like for you to wrap up with with those thoughts. Well, I think there are, you know, there are a number of ways to do it, both formally and in and informally. The um, the CAPC, which is the Center for the Advancement of Palliative Care, has some great programs um, on leadership and and how to develop a palliative care program. And I, I wouldn't, there's so many good ones that you know, part of that would just be contacting them. There's a really incredible organization called Rebel Health um, that has a program called Archangels that is all free, but it is it is getting organizations to acknowledge family caregivers and to, 
take a pledge to support family caregivers. And I would, you know, I would contact them and um, and make a and 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 get an organization wide, um, you know, pledge to to recognize this role because this is this is a big deal. Fifty four million people. Um, one in four adults taking care of somebody they love is huge. Um, and, and I think at the very least, we, we recognize, you know, we recognize that they're there. Um, and, and I can tell you from a very personal standpoint, you end up feeling quite invisible um, at times. Um, um, you know, there's a big gap between what physical and healthcare organizations can do for patients and what the caregiver, which is frequently referred to as the sort of forgotten second patient, really mm -hmm. needs. Um, and so that's more, of a, that's more of a palliative care philosophy that says, let's take the whole. I, I think looking at the topic of narrative medicine, I think looking at the topic of slow medicine, um, I would, if I were a healthcare leader right now, I would read Jessica Zitter's book, which is called Extreme Measures. This is a physician who was a critical, who is a critical care physician, had been a career critical care physician, and at some point realized, you know what, you know, cracking the chest of, a, of an 86-year-old woman who's got end-stage ovarian cancer is not the way to go. And so she did fellowship in palliative care, and now she really successfully marries the fact that sometimes critical care is in, is in order and a lot of times palliative care is in order because right because we live our lives and 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 then we complete them you know so um she she really is um a pretty extraordinary uh leader in this in this idea in medicine well th this has been very helpful we will put links to the information you just shared into the, the show notes. My guest on today's episode of Sound Practice has been Jennifer O'Brien, author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Mike, that was a powerful interview with Jen. She, she's really created a book that will help many caregivers and terminally ill patients. I agree with that, uh, Tothi. And really, beyond caregivers, the hospice doctor's widow and Jennifer's recommendations to physician leaders offer a good amount of useful intellectual capital when it comes to end-of-life care. Well, and Jen referenced some organizations and resources during your interview with her, and we've included those in the show notes. That we did. Tothi? This brings us to the end of another episode of Sound Practice. We hope our audiences enjoyed today's show. And if you did, please consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com, or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Yes, we would really appreciate that. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, please email us at feedback at soundpractice.com. And please join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. 
Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Holy cow, Batman and Robin, Rick Kapow.